0: Welcome to Behind the Warrior, a podcast presented by the EOD Warrior Foundation. This series will focus on resources, interviews, and topics impacting EOD warriors, their families, and the military community at large.
1: Good morning, Mike.
0: Good morning, Sherry.
1: How are you today, sir?
0: I am doing just great. The sun is out, shining, so beautiful day in Florida.
1: All right. The sun is actually a welcome surprise. We've had a lot of rain this last these last couple of weeks, so it's nice to see the sun out.
0: Yes, it is. Okay.
1: All right. Well, we're ready to get started. We we are very excited about our next guest that we have on our podcast. This is Dr. Ryan Brewster. He is a clinical neuropsychologist for the RISC program at the Veterans Administration in Washington, D.C. RISC actually stands for War-Related Illness and Injury Study Center. And Dr. Brewster, welcome. Welcome to the podcast.
2: Hi, Mike. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Thank
1: you. So we're just going to jump right in and get started, Dr. Brewster. And one of the first things that we always like to do to help our listeners better understand who you are and what you do is for you to tell us a little bit about yourself, both from a personal standpoint and also professionally.
2: Absolutely. So as I mentioned, I'm a clinical neuropsychologist at the risk in D.C. Um, I guess we can start, you know, with my, uh, how I came to end up here working with veterans at the risk. Um, I was always pretty interested in, um, brain structure and function in school. And I actually know that neuropsychology existed as a specialty until my last year of undergrad. And when I found out that there were folks that were studying how changes in brain structure and function affected behavior, I pursued a, uh, a graduate degree in that. And, um, I initially thought I'd end up working up with kids because I did a lot of my early training with, uh, children that had brain tumors and epilepsy and, mm-hmm. and really had some rewarding experiences there, but started working more with veterans for the end of my career and realized that that was a, a much better fit for my, um, my personal interests and, and, um, professional interests as well. So ended up, uh, training in a few VAs for my internship and fellowship and, and um, transitioned to working at the Risk uh, a few years ago.
1: Okay, that's awesome. We, um, how long have you actually been doing doing the work? how How long have you been in this career field?
2: So I've been working with veterans since uh, my internship. So since around
1: 2015.
2: Mm-hmm. Um, okay. All right. So I guess you'd say about five years working with veterans.
1: Understand. Okay, so obviously you are working with veterans, but how you know this particular program that you do with the with risk is very unique. And Mike is going to get into those questions and details. But can you tell us what sort of your your everyday role is at at the VA and and how you help our veterans?
2: Sure. So my primary responsibilities at the risk are to perform assessments of cognitive and emotional functioning for veterans that we see in our clinical program. And those types of assessments tell us a little bit more about how someone's brain might be functioning. Um, Changes in how we think and how we feel are sort of some of the most immediate um, immediate sets of information to tell us about changes in the brain. Uh, My other responsibilities include trying to apply what we know about uh, relationships between brain function and behavior to the research we're doing here. And I also direct the fellowship that trains future neuropsychologists to do what we do in both clinical and research um, arenas elsewhere.
1: Very interesting. And and you're a busy guy, for sure. And so moving on to that, I think the, the you know, premise of your interest in neuropsychology and what you just said was, you know, for brain health and understanding behavioral and emotional components that go along with that. And then, you know, for our for our military men and women, we have a lot of instances of traumatic brain injury and specifically for the explosive ordnance disposal field. Um, a lot of our men and women are, are exposed to multiple blasts throughout their career, or maybe in a training incident or, or what have you. So can you just tell us and our listeners what exactly defines traumatic brain injury? Can you can you define that for us and just explain a little bit more in depth about maybe mild to moderate to you know severe and and that sort of thing?
2: Absolutely, sure. And that's a that's an excellent question. I think there is a lot out there in the media and in um, academia about traumatic brain injury, and that includes actually some different ways of defining it, different ways of. Uh, describing the types of difficulties that, that folks with TBIs have. Um, in my opinion, the most clear definition of traumatic brain injury comes from the American Congress of Rehabilitation Medicine, and they define TBI as, you know, any head injury that results in disruption of brain function. Mm-hmm. And we can tell if brain function is disrupted if someone has at least one of uh, these symptoms. And these symptoms include a loss of consciousness, uh, loss of memory for events immediately before or after that injury, or an alteration in mental state at the time of that injury. That's kind of uh, widely defined as as any sort of um, difficulty performing things you'd normally be able to do around that head injury. And you mentioned, you know, talking about the differences between mild, moderate, and severe TBIs, and that, that's very important because this definition includes a wide range of injuries with a wide range of effects. Uh, the most common TBIs we see are mild and are defined as mild. But in some ways, that's a that's misnomer because even the symptoms associated with a mild TBI, which would be a loss of consciousness up to 30 minutes, for example, um, those symptoms can persist for much longer than we'd normally expect in some patients. And what's difficult is, is figuring out exactly why that might be. Um, when we get into more severe head injuries, we can see things, for example, on, on imaging, it tells us a clue that someone has a, a particular injury um, that's changing the structure of their brain in, in a very particular way. But with more mild injuries, we don't really see with traditional forms of imaging, many changes that can explain you know, why someone could be feeling dizzy for so much longer, such a long time after the injury. We don't really see a a specific thing we can point to that explains why someone may have difficulty with memory for not just the event that led to their injury, but for things happening long after um, they've been injured. And that's what makes uh, both treating and studying GBI so difficult. They, they present very differently um, for many people and for reasons that we don't quite have a, a good handle on yet.
1: Right. Um, I think, you know, it's a, from just listening to you define that and thank you for that in depth definition. I think it's, it's helpful to me for sure. And I also think it's a very individualized, you know, uh, trauma to the brain. I mean, you know, if we, if we could have a cookie cutter system to say, yes, you have mild TBI and you need to do A, B, and C and within, within a month, you'll be fine, you know, that would be a magical thing, but that is absolutely not the case in addition to maybe the other manifestations that happen with traumatic brain injury and, um, and other health issues that come along with that. So it's very interesting to me, very, very interesting. And we appreciate the work that you're doing and everyone does on traumatic brain injury to better understand it and to, and to treat our veterans. So, with, with all of that, you know, we, we certainly understand some of the effects, as you described, like potential memory loss, or maybe there's emotional, um, you know, emotions that can't be explained. And from our perspective at the foundation, you know, we not only work with the EOD technicians themselves, whether they're active duty, retired or veteran status, um, we also work with the families and in a lot of cases, you know, the families are also carrying the the effects of, of traumatic brain injury too and better understanding it. So um, just I don't know if you have any insight um, with working with families or veterans and their families that, you know, may be of, of value as far as understanding the actual injury and also communication involving that.
2: So I think that, you know, the patients that we see that that have histories of TBI and this, this goes for the range of TBI. um, You know, what we, what we do see with families is the difficulty that um, a lot of patients have adjusting to not just uh, transitioning out of the military and and transitioning maybe into um, coping with, you know, uh, any collection of injuries that may be, you know, related to their, To their service, so they may have you know some physical symptoms related to um, injuries to their body, but when they also have a combination of of you know difficulty transitioning back to to, a transitioning outside the military and civilian life, we we see family members um, discussing some of the difficulties their their loved one has um, performing you know a lot of the tasks that weren't difficult to them before. Um, they had any type of brain injury, so difficulty with memory, difficulties with speech, difficulty getting back into environments where they need to do things like, um, you know, general problem solving, um, the work environment, school environment. A lot of the times the best sort of indicator that someone's having more functional difficulties are the, the reports of their loved ones and how much that person's changed as a result of having to cope with some of the symptoms that are related to brain injuries. So, we find that talking to family members and, and getting that information from them is, is very helpful in uh, allowing us to better define where a veteran may be having more difficulties with uh, more cognitive and emotional symptoms. I think on the emotional side, that's something that... Um, Comes through very, very, very strong when we speak with um, with loved ones about changes in a veteran um, that that are after head injury. Sometimes we'll see increase in irritability, increases in um, symptoms like depression and anxiety. And I think the really difficult thing is a lot of times we have folks that are that are coping with things like depression, PTSD, stress, and anxiety. But when we add the complicating factor of having a head injury, these things can present very differently for folks um, that don't necessarily have a head injury. In the sense that a head injury may increase the frustration um, that someone may be experiencing because they they don't have the same ability to um, kind of explain what's happening, the same language ability, the same memory. Uh, skills, the same kind of problem solving abilities they may have had before head injury. This can make it much more frustrating for both the, the veteran and their family. You know, our hope is that through going through the risk experience, going through, um, the series of assessments that we complete and the information that we gain from those and, and sort of translating that into concrete, um, information and, and, and ideally next steps for veterans and families is, is where we, we have to complete that circle. Like they provide us the information and we provide information back that, that hopefully leads to, to better next steps.
0: Dr. Brewster, could you uh, please give us some background information about the risk program, how it came to be, what, what you do at the risk uh, center? I understand there are three different risk centers there's one in Washington, D.C., where you're at, there's one in New Jersey, and there's also one in California.
2: Absolutely. So the the risks were established in 2001 um, as a second opinion service that is um, our, our role is to really see complex clinical cases with war related illnesses. And in 2001, the sites at D.C. and New Jersey were established. And in 2008, our most recent site in California was established. The role of the risk in the VA system is to provide uh, medical teams at at a veteran's home risk with some additional information about uh, more complex um, medical concerns they may have. So, for example, a a veteran may be presenting with um, symptoms that are related to an exposure to something that they were, um, they had contact with during their military service. Things like um, Gulf War illness, um, airborne exposures, um, and a lot of the, uh, a lot of different, uh, more difficult to diagnose um, concerns that that are, you know, that have been linked to to um, the more recent conflicts and 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 some of the more remote conflicts that that our veterans have have served in. So things like Vietnam, um, and Agent Orange, and uh, even some of the things that are related to um, some concerns about chemical exposures that come with certain MOSs, including um, folks that work with fuel delivery, um, EOD service members. There there's sort of a lot of different um, possible medical conditions that can result in someone's service, and, and the risks are primarily um, tasked with giving a veteran that has these sets of concerns a very thorough evaluation that can provide sort of a a better game plan for treating that, for treating those concerns at their home base and forward.
0: So speaking of the EOD career field, I understand that the Washington, Washington, D.C. Risk Center has actually come out with a new program, which is centered around EOD techs. Could you talk about that program? Could you you, uh, tell us how that came to be specifically for EOD at the D.C. Risk Center?
2: Absolutely. So our focus on EOD service members and and their concerns was actually spurred by a a letter from an EOD service member that was um, interested in receiving services at the risk. And that letter grew to that letter in participating in our program. And then circling back with us to, to highlight some of the concerns in the EOD community. Um, this is something that that led to us working with that that individual, and then partnering with our colleagues and some some of our colleagues in the DoD and and other and at, at other risks to um, to try to create a program that could apply some of the more um, comprehensive evaluation services that there is to, to to better serve the EOD community. What we know is that EOD service members, by um, due to the, the kind of specific challenges that they uh, come in contact with during their service, so exposures to multiple blasts, exposures to incredibly stressful environments, they present with a constellation of symptoms that, when, um, when looked at, you know, typically we see a lot of concerns about cognitive changes, we see concerns about emotional changes, we see, um, we saw a lot of overlapping diagnoses that make it difficult to tell what may be the uh, underlying set of concerns that are leading to some of the things that they're experiencing long after they've served. And so we decided to uh, create a clinical program that would allow for uh, some more comprehensive assessments that are more specifically tailored to to this population. So...
0: The folks listening to our podcast are going to be EOD techs. Maybe some of them on the fence. We have the, our biggest population is retired, and of course we have family members too. So you can imagine that uh, uh, you know either veteran or retiree, possibly the spouse is listening to this. So you know, she's listening to this and mm-hmm. she's she's hearing about this program. Like wow, EOD does this, does that, and she talks to her husband and says, hey, have you have you? Uh, you know, have you thought about applying for this program? He's like, no. So why not? Well, blah, blah, blah. I so said, no, you, you need to listen to this. Here's why. So it's kinda like, you know, more of mm-hmm. more of the main points, you know, what is the what is the benefit for an EOD tech? And I'm gonna get into a little bit of that We're gonna go down there, but you know, why would an EOD tech wanna wanna come to this program, you know? And and also I'm trying to make the correlation to as well of you said something you hit on earlier about that uh Uh, some of these individuals like this is a second opinion service Mm -hmm. and so you have uh, we have many EOD techs that are frustrated with their doctors because they feel like their doctors are just like okay I hear you I hear you and they don't really feel they're being heard and then they're being put on meds etc so they want to come to this study They want to, they sometimes feel like they're not, they're not being fully evaluated or fully understood. So that's where you guys come in and they leave here. And then this, this information that you have, are you able to send that back to their doctor to help their doctor formulate a better care plan for them?
2: Right, right. That's, yes, that makes, that makes it a lot easier. So kind of, um, yeah, scaffolding what makes us different
0: yeah yeah because for them you know it 's all about uh, uh and, and when I say for them, I would say pretty much all these guys and gals i've worked with over the years it's uh you hear all these frustrate you have to i mean we talked about this you, you hear all these frustrating stories with him oh, my my nurse or my doctor they don 't understand me, or my mental health counselor doesn 't understand me or they're not they 're not doing the right stuff here and there, so this program here is like this this is this is something new this is like hope uh the risk the risk program is a hope program to them because it 's like I'm going to be able to get all my stuff out. You're going to be able to look at everything. And you can tell me whether or not, you know, my doctor is a quack. I don't mean it like that. You know what I mean? Right. You can tell me whether or not, right. my, you, whether my doctor is totally off his rocker or, or maybe, you know, sometimes you guys probably validate and say, no, your, your care team is doing an excellent job. And here's, oh, okay. You know, that sort of reassurance that they're not getting back at the home station VA, then they come, they come back and they're like talking to their doctor and they're sharing that information. And and so it kind of helps the doctor and the patient to, to, to form a better bond and and to improve their care. And one of the things I was going to exactly ask, yeah, and one of the things I was going to ask you, which may not be a question I probably shouldn't ask you, but I was going to ask you something of you know, have you guys learned anything from <laughs> the last ten years? Has there been any advancements in treatments and understanding of TBI, and is that something that's discussed and sent back with, uh, with with your uh, uh, patients back to the VA? And- well, I think
2: yeah, the interesting about that question is is that what we're really seeing is that there's yes, there's some emerging treatments that have been showing some promise in um, helping folks you know, regain some of the cognitive skills they've lost. Um, that's more of a, a question of having um, different strategies to, to sort of supplement the, the abilities they already have. We're seeing that once we have someone's mental health um, uh, well, well supported by their, their home VA, we're seeing better outcomes. But specifically for brain injury, you know, we're, we're not seeing a lot of emerging, um, you know, new interventions. But the overall thing we're seeing is that patients that do better are patients that have access to sort of wraparound programs. So, programs where um, they're able to get, you know, a, a set of, of um, experts in a room all sort of looking at their, their, their medical concerns at the same time. So, um, polytrauma programs in the VA that, that, kind of have a more holistic um, view of a patient's medical um, medical concerns. Like So uh, they, they're supported by both psychiatry, psychology, psychiatry, social work. Uh, folks that are kind of having this more wraparound care model um, are just having better outcomes because brain injuries are so complex and they affect so many different systems. It's more about trying to treat what we can um, while we continue to research different ways to, to more directly treat pain in the brain.
0: That's fantastic. And what have you learned anything so far? I know the EOD program has not been out that long, and, and uh, there's been delays, and et cetera. So have you actually gotten any, any information, or is it too early to uh, analyze the kind of data that you've received, you've received so far?
2: So let us say is, it is we are very early um, in this study. We, we haven't really gotten to the point where we have a data set that, that can tell us, um, you know, something, something unique. and that's why it's really important for us to, to continue to um, see as many EOD texts as we can, to, to continue to um, build upon this database so it can tell us a little bit more about what we're, some of the more, some of the more complex questions we're trying to answer.
0: Okay, and and then with the information that you are able to gather when you're done with a meeting with the patient for that week, you share that information with their primary provider at the VA back back where they're uh, where they live in the in their home state.
2: Absolutely. So so the way that our program works is that you know the, these veterans come into the state for um, you know a week a week long set of business with a lot of different folks that that write. Um, Reports and then directly into their VA medical record. And then at the end of that week, um, our medical director summarizes all of those different assessments, all those evaluations and all the information we've learned from, you know, this team of professionals and, um, adds that note to that patient's set, uh, uh, medical record. So the patient also away with a uh, sort of more concise game plan, um, from the risk and their, their primary care provider or, or the, whoever ended up attending the consult or the patient also gets a copy of this. So both the patient and their medical team have access to um, all the information we were able to gather during the time.
0: I I would imagine with with that type of information, going back to their VA providers where they live, that that would kind of help uh, submit their relationship probably provide better treatment uh, for for the patient and help the provider to kind of zero in on on what works and what what doesn't work. I would imagine that that gives a better overall um, treatment plan for for those who are engaging with their providers and with this program
2: absolutely and that that's sort of leverages our role as a, as a second opinion service. The idea is that you know sometimes we may say what we may find is in line with what the home team recommends, and and that's that's reassuring for the patients because they're saying that okay this entire entirely different set of of professionals is saying you know what the the initial plan you had was a good plan we should continue working that plan um, sometimes it's a question of focusing on um, focusing on what was in the original plan in a different order so maybe just modifying the plan and in some cases we're actually able to say you know what we had a little bit more time to look at this medical record we have um, a different set of folks look at this particular set of symptoms and we may end up discovering something that um, wasn't initially considered and it results in sort of a new plan. The end, the end goal is really to make sure that the best possible um, set of next steps is given to the patient and their home team so that care can be continued um, when they return home. You know, the, the unfortunate thing about the risk is that we can't... Um, we can't become the, 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 the veteran's primary care team where we're not really set up in a way that um, allows us to sort of to, to, to be that resource that's local to everybody. But what we can do is, is take another look and say, this makes sense or it doesn't. And many times that, that is helpful to have that outside uh, second opinion.
0: So as far as uh, access for EOD veterans that want to get into this program, right now the program is only offered at the Washington, D.C. Risk Center. Is that correct?
2: That is correct. So you know, within our catchment area, um, we're, only, we're only able to offer that, that particular program in our catchment area at this time. Um, the idea is that oh, – go
0: ahead. Right, which uh, I was just going to mention out for our listeners that uh, the catchment area is in the southeast region. And I believe those states are identified in in the handouts that you currently have out there.
2: That's correct, and and at our our website as well.
0: Do you know if there's any plans to expand the EOD risk program to the other risk centers in California and New Jersey? Or is it too early at this time?
2: So at this time, what we're we're really hoping to do is get the program off the ground in, in the southeast region. Um, we're hoping that once we're able to demonstrate that the, the program is helpful both to patients clinically and that we start, you know, um, gathering enough, enough research, uh, enough data to, to contribute to the research that, that directly assists the EOD community, we're hoping that the other centers will be able to um, devote some resources to, to expanding the program. But it's really our job right now to, to sort of establish it. As as a, as a functional and helpful service for you, veterans.
1: That's that's fantastic, and we will definitely stay tuned in in reference to any sort of expansion is concerned, Ryan. Um, the other thing that I I wanted to ask is, I understand in this whole vid- whole COVID-19 crisis that we're having, um, you know, a lot of programmatic pieces have shifted to a virtual platform, and I understand that you guys are working on something and hasn't been completely rolled out, but at this time, you're not necessarily seeing, well, you're not seeing face-to-face patients, but you're trying to um, really accommodate the situation that we're currently in. And with the virtual program, so can you can you talk a little bit about that?
2: Absolutely. So, you know the um, the pandemic hit right as we were planning to you know begin rolling out our our in person sort of EOD focus uh, comprehensive evaluation, and what it's allowed us to do is to uh, consider you know alternate ways of connecting with patients and alternate ways of of contributing to um, their medical records by by completing as much of these these uh, comprehensive values as we can remotely. So what we're actually rolling out next month is a virtual ver- version of our program. That, and what I mean by that is that veterans will be um, veterans interested in receiving Service Service will be um, also the opportunity to instead of having a series of in-person visits with us, have a series of um video based visits with us. So in the same way that we would generally have um a veteran meet with you know two or three providers a day uh during the week, we can have them then meet with two or three providers a day from their own home. The the goal is to to avoid having folks traveling during a time when traveling is a little bit more um of a risk. Uh, we don't want folks getting into airports and, and, and coming to unfamiliar cities. Um, you know when we can provide with some of the care we provide in person directly to their homes
1: understood
0: so dr brewster how does a veteran in the southeast area enroll in the program uh, for the cod program how do how do they do that what's what's the first step you're interested you want to enroll in this program what do you do
2: so that's actually relatively simple. Um, the first step is, is really to make sure that you're you're properly enrolled in the VA. The, the risk service is, uh, you know, a, an extension of the VA's services, and, we, and we're not really equipped right now to see veterans that aren't um, you know connected to the VA. Once you're connected to the VA and you have a primary care provider, the next step is is to discuss your interest with the uh, with the risk with your provider. And, um, talk about them submitting a consult, um, for our service to, um, through, through the medical, through the VA medical record. So all you really need to do is to ask the provider to mention in the consult to the risk that you're interested in our EOD program. And the consult will, um, sort of be reviewed by our team and you will receive, uh, an answer of whether or not, you know, this, we think that this program would be a good, a good choice for you at this time. Do
0: you know if all the providers in the southeast region uh, working at the VA, the doctors, do they know about your program? Uh, would it be helpful for an EOD tech veteran who is enrolled, who is seeing his primary care provider, would it be helpful that he brings the handout in with him and says, hey, doc, I'd like to get enrolled in this program or consulted? Yeah, you know, Mike, you that's, like an to, yeah. that's an excellent
2: idea. That's an excellent idea. I think that, you know, not all providers do know about the risk. That's part of um why we're trying to, to do a little bit more outreach. We're trying to um, you know participate in, in in podcasts like the one you've offered us an opportunity to, to, to be featured on today to, to get the word out a little bit about um, you know the services available through this. So I think that it is very well possible that the not all providers know and having the handout and having the um, information included on that handout which includes you know the link to our webpage and the instructions about um, getting enrolled in in our program would be very helpful
0: for all of our listeners out there. Uh, thank you, dr. Brewster, for letting letting interested EOD techs who want to enroll in this program know that uh, number one, you have to be enrolled in the vA medical system two, you have to get a primary care provider. Three, you need to get a consult with your primary care provider to the program, and it probably is a good idea to take a copy of the uh, risk handout so your provider can see that so you can be um, referred. And one question I'd like to ask you, just uh, just kind of personal there for you, is uh, what keeps you motivated to do what you do?
2: Well, Mike, honestly, it's, it's contact with veterans. It's um, It's being able to... Uh, you know, start off an interaction with with hearing a veteran's concerns, hearing the the difficulties they're they're facing, um, and to spend some time trying to think of a, a better set of recommendations that'll help them. And and you know, what keeps me motivated is you know seeing them attempt those recommendations and and, and hearing you know, in, in not all cases, but in in many cases, that things are helpful. Um, you know, on the research side. You know things. You can see, kind of, on a, on a grand scale, how things are are improving, how things are 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 um, having an effect. But individually, working with with folks, I think there's something a lot more um, kind of salient to me about uh, making that difference and seeing it firsthand.
1: Dr. Brewster, what do you hope our listeners will gain from your interview with us today?
2: I, I hope your listeners will, will take away from this interview um, the idea that there is, in fact, a program out there that uh, may be able to provide them with some additional answers um, and with an opportunity to um, you know receive a much more comprehensive look at what's going on with them medically that, that may be helpful.
1: Um, I do, too, and I, I just want our listeners to also know that we are continuing to share this information about the risk program that's specifically for the EOD technicians, veterans, veteran EOD technicians in our Southeast region, that we continue to share it on our Facebook page. And, you know, Mike and I are here to answer additional questions. Also, it's great to have a relationship with you to be able to have a you know direct contact and and say, Doctor Rooster, I have this. I have a veteran that needs this, or I have a veteran who has this unique situation, and you have been incredibly responsive and helpful to us, and we we can't thank you enough for that. I, I think there's just a lot of value in this this program, and I I definitely hope folks continue to take advantage of it. And, you know, research takes time. And while in some instances we want that instant answer and and the gratification of knowing that what we contributed to maybe to, to this program, you want it instantly. But ultimately, for every veteran EOD technician that's entering this program and, you know, they're contributing to what will what will happen in the future and and it's incredible. And I, I just think we can't thank you enough for all of the work and efforts that are being put forth for our EOD community. And it's it's super important to us and, and thank you.
2: Sherry, thank you for the opportunity to um, you know, speak today and, and thank you for, you know, helping us get the word out about this program. I, I, I have to say that you know the work you you all are doing through the foundation and, and continuing to try to to reach out to the community and provide the community with a voice has been you know really inspiring to us here, and um, we just we are really grateful for the opportunity to work with you.
1: Thank you. We the the feeling is mutual, and with that, I just have a couple of very you know general questions or maybe some fun and lighthearted questions to answer or to ask you here at the end. And just, um, do you have any, do you have any books that on brain health in particular that you would find, you know, that you would recommend to someone, um, that maybe would like to learn more about traumatic brain injury in particular?
2: Sure, sure. I think that, um, you know, one that really sticks out for me isn't even specific to, um, traumatic brain injury per se. It's actually about, um, you know, sort of regaining some of the skills you may have had or um, different strategies to help cope with some of the symptoms that may be um, experienced by someone that has a TBI or any other um, brain injury. And uh, that book is called Bouncing Back, Skills for Adaptation to Injury, Aging, Illness and Pain. Okay. And it's authored by uh, Dr. Richard Wanless. Okay. And that's, uh, his last name is W-A-N. L-A-S-S. Awesome. And I, I, I really like um, sort of sharing some recommendations from that book with patients and, and recommending to patients to, to read that book because I think it's very concrete about different steps that folks can take to um, you know, improve uh, some of the, the cognitive symptoms, some of the cognitive um, changes that they may notice after an injury or something as you know, common to all of us is aging.
1: Understand, I that sounds good. It sounds like something I need. I would like to read actually and share with my husband too. <laughs> it sounds. I'll be good. honest,
2: with you, I've I've mm-hmm. taken some of the things from that book in my day to day life, and and it has been helpful.
1: That's great. And um, one last kind of more maybe serious question, or maybe not so serious. I'm not really sure, but um, if you could give one self care tip to our veteran population out there, what what would it be?
2: I think the thing that, that, that pops into my mind um, is definitely sleep hygiene. Um, so sleep is so centrally important to our cognitive function, our emotional functioning, our physical functioning. And it's something that I think, you know, is is not just by veterans, but by almost everyone is really, really overlooked until, wow. um, you know, we run into to some of the problems related to it. So I think you know, just focusing on getting, um, doing whatever you can to improve your sleep, whether that's changing your schedule, whether that's um, just trying to make a very comfortable environment that, that's conducive to sleep, keeping a, a, a very set routine when it comes to, to going to bed and waking up. That's probably the most important thing, the most um, sort of bang for your buck you can get, you can get in terms of making a change um, in, your, in, your, in your health practices.
1: Sure. Well, it's it's interesting that you mentioned sleep hygiene in particular, because we are going to be focusing on an episode specifically about wellness practices that contribute to your overall health and, and sleep hygiene is one of those. And so we're super excited to, to talk about that too, because Mike and I definitely believe in that. And it, it's it takes time and it takes some adjusting, but Man, I feel a whole lot better when I get my sleep and when I stay on a routine. And just that in itself improves my, my daily life and how I feel. So I think that's a great, great tip.
2: I look forward to that podcast.
1: Yeah. Um, we are, too. We're, we're super excited um, about, about all of them. So, All right. So here are the fun and lighthearted questions. And this is going to come from, you know, from kind of the overarching topic of what are some of your favorites. So, with that said, what is your favorite meal?
2: My favorite meal? So, I would have to say um, definitely a medium rare cut of ribeye. Oh. Big fan of steak.
0: I'm with you.
1: Okay. So, <laughs> do you do it on a gas grill or a charcoal grill?
2: I gonna forgot.
1: Yeah. Okay. I know there's
2: going to be folks that don't, but I, I don't even forget.
1: Okay. Your ribeye. That sounds delicious. You're making me hungry. It's lunchtime here. <laughs> <laughs> um, how about your favorite book?
2: So my favorite book is probably The Last Lecture by Randy Posh. It's a very short read, but it's something that kind of uh, I find myself rereading when I need to kind of make sure my priorities are in order.
1: Okay. Very interesting. Mike and I like those very short books to, uh, to read and, and give a little bit of encouragement when we need it. So I'll check that one out too. Um, and then the final one is favorite vacation spot.
2: So I think my favorite vacation spot, and it's honestly it's been this way for a long time is, is still, you know, Miami, Florida. Mm-hmm. I, I went to college around there and, uh, you know, left, pretty shortly after that, but I, I always like to return as well. Mm-hmm. It's a lot of relaxing things to do down there.
1: That's cool. Well, let me just say that if you ever find yourself in the panhandle of Florida, and that's where we're located, um, we would we would love to take you out to dinner or maybe even grill a ribeye with you.
2: <laughs> oh, <yeah. laughs> Thank you, Sarah. Okay. I, I appreciate that invitation. All right, I'll keep that in mind
1: Well, absolutely. And um, with with all of this, Dr. Brewster, I just again, thank you very, very much for everything you're doing for the EOD community. You know, uh, we're our foundation is incredibly dedicated to these servicemen and women, and we certainly like partnering and being a part of of you know a broader picture in any way that we can to help them. So thank you again.
0: Thank you, Dr. Brewster.
2: Thank you both for the opportunity.
0: Thank you for listening to our Behind the Warrior podcast. This series is provided to you by the EOD Warrior Foundation. To learn more, please visit us on Facebook or at EODWarriorFoundation.org. And don't forget to tell a friend.